Profiles and Strategy, a podcast series of talks by the U.S. Naval War College Strategy and Policy Department. I'm your host, Lieutenant Colonel John O'Gorman, United States Marine Corps. The views expressed herein do not necessarily represent the views of the Naval War College or the United States. All right, hello and welcome everyone to Profiles and Strategy. This is episode 30. We are talking about coercion, deterrence, and compellence. I'm Lieutenant Colonel John O'Gorman, United States Marine Corps, your host um, from the U.S. Naval War College Strategy and Policy Department. Joining me today, um, first, one of my colleagues from the Strategy and Policy Department, Commander Dan Post, military professor. Dan, welcome. Uh, next, we have um, outside guests joining us today for the first time on the podcast. First is Dr. Reed Pauley. He is the Dean's Assistant Professor of Nuclear Security and Policy at the Watson Institute of Brown University and also an Assistant Professor of Political Science. Welcome, Reed. Pleasure to be here. And uh, last but certainly not least, Brigadier General Greg Bowen, United States Army, retired former Deputy Director of Operations at U.S. Strategic Command and a member of the National Institute for Deterrence Studies. General, welcome. Thank you very much. All right, so uh, for our, our listeners, we're, we're, gonna, we're gonna talk about coercion theory, um, what it is, what it does, and then hopefully by the end here, how it could potentially apply to different scenarios, namely perhaps Russia and the Ukraine, uh, or um, uh, China and Taiwan. Um, but first, let's start with the theory. So uh, coercion 101 and its, its sub-departments of, um, of deterrence and, and compellence. So uh, Reed, let's start with you. Give us, the, give us the lowdown here, the background on coercion. Sure, so I'm excited to have this conversation. I teach a class here that's called Coercion, Deterrence and Compellence. I also teach classes uh, on, on nuclear strategy in general. Um, and, and, you know, coercion theory is fascinating to um, uh, civilian and military uh, uh, students. And it's something that, that has been consistent throughout human history, uh, if we define it just as the practice of making threats to try and get what you want in international politics, right? So um, uh, every coercive uh, interaction requires three things. One is that I've made a threat, that there is some punishment that is looming that, that I can impose upon you uh, as the target of my threat. Uh, the second thing is that it has a demand, that there's something that I actually want you to do that is tied to that threat. And the third thing, whether I've made it explicit or not, um, but can just be implied by threat making, is an assurance that it's a choice that I am giving you that if you disobey, that you will suffer the consequences and I will carry out my threat, but also that if you do obey, that you can avoid the punishment. We call that an assurance um, uh, in the language of Tom Schelling. Uh, uh, so, so those three things are required. Um, my field goes and kind of studies this even more broadly. And if you add in carrots, uh, we often call it coercive diplomacy. Uh, if, you, if you're adding in kind of bribes to help um, uh, just uh, bargain with a rational target uh, to try and get them to do what you want. Uh, the key concept behind all this is uh, credibility. Uh, the target does not uh, have any incentive to do what you want them to do if uh, your threats are not perceived as credible or your assurances are not perceived as credible. Um, uh, I should clarify, by the way, that uh, every time I go to Washington, when I talk about assurance this way, it's confusing because people only think about assurance in the sense of allies, right? That we reassure our allies that we will be there to defend them. But that's a very different concept than what Schelling meant when he used the term uh, assurance to mean the, the contingency, uh, of the choice implied by every threat. Um, and so I'm an, an acolyte of Schelling and, and um, I, I come at this from studying uh, uh, in his legacy in the discipline, thinking about when threats work and when they don't, when coercion succeeds and when it fails. Uh, and the key distinction that Schelling made was between compellent threats and deterrent threats. 
uh, deterrence being the, uh, to prevent from action by mean fear of consequences. Uh, so if deterrence succeeds, the target simply has to do nothing. They sit on their hands and, and we think our deterrent has worked. Uh, it's a selection problem to try and figure out whether that actually is what worked. But uh, long story short, they don't have to do anything for deterrence to work. Compellence is a lot harder because I am actually trying to force you to take action through fear of consequences. So uh, there are lots of reasons why it's more difficult. But if I make a compellent threat, um, I have to get you to get off your uh, seat and actually um, take action. I have threatened to make the first move if you uh, do not. Um, I have to assure you that once I take action that I'm going to stop if you start to comply. That's harder to do. Uh, and uh, you have to um, do something in public as in take action. So there's a face-saving problem associated with compellence. So compellence is a lot harder. Um, those are the two main types of coercion. And, and that's the language that I'm going to use kind of today and continue to use in class that we should clarify because some people, uh, you know, think of coercion as distinct from deterrence, but I'm the in the Schelling school, it says there's there's this concept of coercion and there's two types of coercion, deterrence and compellence. And compellence is a lot harder. Now, I laid out a lot of concepts there. I think I should should stop talking for now, uh, but I'll be very interested to, to dig into all of these things with the uh, practitioners in the room. Awesome, awesome. Thank you, thank you, Reed. So speaking of practitioners, Gerald Bowen, why don't we go to you next in terms of what you, what you think of as a practitioner when we talk about uh, deterrence, compellence? Yeah, so I'd uh, being the dumb army guy that I am, I'm gonna I'll, I'll have to simple it down just a little bit because Reed's description reminded me of being married, and I'm as you all know, we're all afraid of our wives and we yeah. comply with her guidance, right? So, uh, but from from my perspective and, and uh, Schelling, a uh, lot of good stuff. I happen to be a Herman Kahn fan myself, but uh, yeah, just a kind of a different approach to the problem. But the way that I look at it. Um, if you break it down into deterrence and compellence, really what we're doing in deterrence is we're trying to prevent an adversary or some actor from doing something that we don't want them to do. And conversely, for compellence, we're trying to force them to do something that they don't want to do. And we do that through a variety of means. And um, as you know, you guys in the Naval War College, I'm sure, uh, also teach dime. So we're looking at all the elements of, of national power, not just kinetic threats, um, but looking at uh, across the dime um, domains and, and what can we do as a country to force somebody to do something that they don't want to do or prevent them from doing something that we don't want them to do. So I kind of look at it, it's a little bit more simplistic in my world, um, but uh, all, all really good points. Okay, thank you. Uh, Dan, any, any thoughts on this? Uh, just a quick, quick thought about um, coercion in general is uh, in contrast in Schelling's language to the other option you have to get the adversary to do what you want to do, which is brute force. So that's the, that's the language that Schelling uses. And he uses some other words at, at other times, but that's kind of the main thing. And so one of the things that like our students at the War College, everybody kind of comes in thinking about I'm I'm the military. I'm the I'm the uh, forceful side of the equation here. So we tend to get focused on how do we make the enemy do what we want through through the use of force. Right. So that but that that type of. <clears throat> thinking that that's the contrast to, to coercion. So, and in any conflict and in any, any uh, strategy, even when you're thinking about this, you're always doing a little bit of both. If you've gone to, if you've gone to the use of military force, you're probably, if you've decided to use force, you're probably trying to just, you know, defeat the enemy and make them do what you want to do. That would be brute force. They don't have to make any choices. It's the equivalent of picking them up and physically moving them out of a room, right? You pick them up, you push them out the door. They don't have to comply with you for that. But if you try to convince them to walk out, that now you're trying to coerce them. So you have the brute force element, and then you have the coercion element. And I think it's important for our our students and practitioners in general to think about when you're you know when you're trying to do each of those things, or you know what's the what's the balance? Am I just trying to force this enemy to do what I want, or am I actually trying to do a, do something coercive with my use of force? And it helps to think about that. And then the other point I'll just add is. And this was also uh, kind of Schelling's, one of his broader points, which is even though, so I agree with Reed 100%, compellence is much more difficult. 
uh, and we can talk a little bit more about that if you want. But both deterrence and compellence, coercion in general, is also difficult. And that was something Schelling, I think, wanted to get across to his students or, you know, in his work was that both of these are difficult because it, it, it requires the adversary to do something and, you know, or to not do something, but it requires a cooperation in some sense of the adversary. And so uh, it's difficult. There are no easy answers to which capabilities make this work, et cetera. So, you know, hopefully we're going to, I think we're going to talk about a little bit more about that, like what makes this work. Uh, so I just want to add that. Thanks. Yeah, that's, so that's an interesting, uh, an interesting segue in terms of, um, what what makes it work uh because i there's there's a couple examples that that jumped to my mind of um you know we bombed saddam hussein for years and uh with uh, whatever effects and then we decided in 2003 that wasn't enough um we tried to bomb the serbs when they were uh, uh fighting against in, in in kosovo and whatnot and that didn't uh that didn't work until croat ground forces came in so there's there's a way to um uh you know, see where the see where theory breaks down. But uh, Reed, I'm sorry, you wanted to we wanted to respond. Go ahead to that. Well, I just thought that uh, Dan made an excellent point, right? To um, point out the original distinction between brute force and coercion, um, and you know, as much as uh, coercion has been consistent a consistent practice from by you know political leaders for um, uh, millennia. Um, it is no surprise that we got really into studying it in the United States only in the nuclear age, mm -hmm. thinking about um, uh, how nuclear weapons changed international politics. This is Schelling's, the whole point of you know, his book is to say, look, the world is different now, and I'm not so confident anymore that we can make credible threats. And I have to, we have to talk about, figure out ways how we can signal our interests to try and get what we want in international politics when everybody knows that there are very small, a small set of circumstances in which we'd actually be willing to use nuclear weapons. Mm. Uh, and so, so it's this, um, you know, distinction between an age of brute force where it used to be the case that you had. Uh, offensive power to try and uh, impose your will on others and defensive power to try and resist the will of others to be imposed upon you. And now thinking that the world will be governed more by coercive interactions and the perception of, of the threats that are credible or not. Uh, uh, and that's how political disputes are going to be shaken out rather than through brute force. Um, now, uh, you know, this leads to lots of interesting thinking about when coercion can succeed or fail. But Dan's point is a really good one that uh, in general, coercion is a very low probability strategy uh, uh, of success. Right. So if you especially look at compellants, uh, there have been scholars who try and count it, you know, and, and do a quantitative analysis throughout history. Um, and they come up with numbers that are pretty consistently around one third success. So the United States has achieved success in about a third of the compellent threats that it has made against other actors in the international system. And there are lots of reasons why that's hard. It's because the deck is stacked against you. You know, for starters, if we could shake out our disputes a different way, we wouldn't make threats. So like we're already selecting into the really hard cases where we try coercive uh, uh, means. Um, another thing that there's a really fascinating article written on just last year um, by Katie Powers and Dan Altman uh, is about the psychology of coercion. People don't like doing what they're told. If you come and tell them, you know, you have to behave a certain way, otherwise I'm going to hurt you. Uh, there's just like a bristling that happens there where they say, well, I, I don't know what I was going to do before necessarily, but I don't want to do it now that you've told me I can't, you know, I, I want to resist. Uh, and so there's, there are lots of reasons why um, it, is, it is a difficult strategy to make uh, successful, uh, but it's also one that is the chief means by which in a nuclear world, especially uh, nations can shake out any disputes over the status quo that they have by trying to communicate how resolved I am and whether I am more resolved than you over this issue. Uh, mm -hmm. So it's critically important to study, but not surprising that it it has a low success rate. So that that what you said rhymes with a lot of the stuff we talk about in the strategy and policy course. 
um, because we study the Cold War and, you know, the advent of nuclear weapons and how, so we're the only nation to use nuclear weapons. And then five years later, when um, Korea was going on, the fact that we had nuclear weapons didn't prevent the North Koreans from crossing the 38th parallel, nor did it prevent the Chinese from um, getting involved in that in that conflict after we'd intervened. But Eisenhower, when he's elected president in 52, does kind of make some very uh, coercive threats with with the nuclear big stick that says, hey, we got to we're going to end the war because all means are on the table or, you know, worse to that effect. Um, he makes that threat and, you know, whether or not it has something to do with Stalin dying and then pieces may or, you know, or an armistice signed anyway in Korea. But after that period of time, that threat of we have nuclear weapons doesn't seem to work in any of our other Cold War conflicts, Vietnam, um, you know, Afghanistan. The fact that we have nukes doesn't really stop people from uh, crossing borders or, or attacking. What, what would you say to that, Reid? Yeah, um, from from that very early uh, 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 conflict in the in the nuclear age and onwards, we've we have learned more and more about uh, the small set of circumstances under which nuclear uh, weapons are useful tools in international politics. So, uh, you know, the nuclear taboo is starting to take hold already. Uh, at that time that, uh, and you see Eisenhower administration officials, you know, especially Dulles saying things like, this is really bad. It's scary. You know, we don't want there to be a taboo against the use of nuclear weapons because we would mm -hmm. like other people to think uh, that we will use our nuclear weapons. You know, it undermines the credibility of our deterrent or whatnot. Um, but, you know, in general, what, it, what it's revealing is, is just that, um, you know, we continue to learn throughout the nuclear age that nuclear weapons are are not, uh, you know, the ultimate weapon that prevents political disagreements of some kind in international politics. International politics is is the same as it's always been, um, but we now are rowing in the same boat as our adversaries, where we have to uh, all agree that we're not going to, you know, uh, cause uh, uh, civilization-ending war. But we still have these disagreements, so it's not surprising to see uh, uh, uses of uh, conventional force and, and crises still in the nuclear age, uh, because politics is still politics. Um, we just do it a little more on tenterhooks, uh, uh, worried the, about escalation. Um, but, you know, the, putting a scholarly lens on this, the concept that that clarifies all this or is supposed to clarify all this comes originally from Snyder about the stability instability paradox. I was, I was just about to introduce that. Well, why don't you do that? I've been doing too much talking. I, uh, I, I yeah, want Dan, the, the bright uh, Brown uh, University student to tell us more about the stability <laughs> instability paradox. Well, it, you, you, it, you were essentially describing it, you know, it, it, which is, you know, you, of course, why you led, led me right to this, but you know, essentially, one thing that nuclear weapons arguably seem to do is sort of put a cap on what states are willing to attempt to do, you know, so there, there have not been those types of major great state state on state wars between the great powers since the, you know, whichever those great powers are at, at any given time uh, in the nuclear era. And yet you still have all these lower level uh, conflicts. And so that's what Snyder was describing and what the stability instability paradox sort of uh, is, which is that everyone knows no one will will risk the, the, the world ending nuclear confrontation. And therefore, it makes it safe to do these things at the lower levels of competition and conflict because they understand that they may lose, but they'll they'll lose in that limited context. They they're not they're, you know because they're because they're not demanding you know the ultimate aims. They're not going to suffer the ultimate consequence. And so uh, this this has become uh, you know kind of uh, the state of the world, in my opinion, is that we have a certain level of stability and then vast amounts of instability below that level of conflict and. It's what policymakers now are struggling with. And, you know, the, the ultimate goal is for, you know, policymakers and is to how can we succeed in this environment where 
you know, there's a limit to what we can do and what our adversaries are going to do in response. But, you know, how can we use our power? Because there's, you know, because we're, we're kind of limited in, in a way. Um, yeah, I wonder well, this, if uh, this if, is this is Ukraine today. This is yeah. uh, the more confident you are that nobody is interested in fighting a strategic nuclear war, the, the more confidently you can engage in conventional uses of force. Uh, and right. that has permitted Vladimir Putin to engage in a conventional war brutally in Ukraine while using nuclear weapons as a shield behind which to engage in that conventional aggression. Right. Yeah. Right. Um, so why don't we get uh, General Bowen's thoughts on this, uh, this concept? Well, interesting conversations. Um, so I think a lot of most countries probably view the United States as is always trying to be the good guy to hold the moral high ground. And they probably know that based on that, we've th th there's a reasonable chunk of our population that uh, is opposed to nuclear weapons. You, you see all the anti-nuke people. And you know, uh, I think that Putin's move into the Ukraine has, has silenced them a little bit because maybe they're realizing uh, it's still a dangerous world out there. But there's this kind of this moral component to it. And Reed kind of touched on it. But we're the good guys. So we're not going to go and nuke some little country if we can go in there with our conventional forces and get the job done that we need to do. Um, so I think it, from a, a nuclear perspective, when you're looking at deterrence, um, we, we, don't, we don't have credibility or we, they, they probably question if we have the resolve to actually follow through with the threats that we're making. And as a result of that, I mean, we don't make we don't threaten countries with nuclear war that much. Um, we we threaten them if they attack us, we're going to attack you back. Um, mm -hmm. But we don't we don't use that as a coercive tool. I don't think uh, it's kind of in the background. It's sort of un, unspoken. It's there. But I think everybody in the world is pretty convinced that the United States isn't going to conduct a first strike on some country uh, to get their attention. So it's uh it, it's kind of a difficult um it, it's a messy business to try to quantify what that would look like um in the real world so i it, you know i i kind of i the point dan made you know there hasn't been great power competition or war on the planet since 1945 so you can make an argument that nuclear deterrence has worked we're the only country who's ever dropped one in anger too um and you know, it's it's changed the dynamic, I think, of of international conflict. Um, but um, that said, I don't think that the the nuclear threat is a valid one in any situation or case, except for something something large like you know, maybe, great maybe power that's competition. A, maybe that's a good thing, right? Maybe maybe accepting that that's true is is okay. Uh, <laughs> Uh, but also, and also the threat, the credibility, like Reed mentioned earlier, the credibility of nuclear threats for less than existential or or major things is not unique to the United States. Every nuclear power suffers that credibility problem. Um, so it, it's something. Well, I, I would, I would maybe take a step back from that because I'm I'm watching um, mm. Kim Jong Un, and I, I I'm not sure if if that would apply to him. He seems a moderately unhinged at times um i don't think he's irrational uh i think he's he's got a plan but i'm not sure that applies to the the earlier nuclear powers us the russians the chinese um and others the french the brits uh i think you're i think you're spot on but now you've got these other actors out there you've got you know the, the north koreans uh i'm sure soon enough the iranians are going to be binned in the same bunch and and how does how does how does it work with them? That that's actually an interesting question because it seems like so if you know as Reed mentioned the the concept of assurances or credible threats, if you're a we'll call it a smaller actor like North Korea uh, or or someday Iran or or whatever, how do you build up the um, the credible threat that you have nukes and you're willing to use them in order to deter or compel, uh, you know, to get the United States out of your area of operations or uh, to just intimidate your your neighbors and um, uh, uh, people around you. Does it well, does I that? Mean, go ahead. Go ahead. Well, we push them into it. If you think about it, 
they watched what we did to Saddam when Saddam didn't want to play nice and Gaddafi. Okay. We just went in there and rolled right through and and he's looking at his situation and he thinks his only way to, to, to remain in power is to have nukes and be able to threaten us. And it's, it's working. Yeah. And I think there's, there's a certain amount of credibility that comes with the threat for these actors is existential or could be, and certainly could be perceived as an existential threat to them. And, and that's, that's the circumstance under which nuclear threats are more credible, perhaps inherently credible. If, you know, I don't think anyone doubts that the United States would use every tool at its disposal if we were suffering a massive invasion of the continental United States. No one doubts that, right? That that would be, um, or, you know, few people would probably doubt that. Um, and so if in the North, you know, North Korea or, or a smaller actor that could conceivably, the regime could be changed at least, if not the entire country overrun and, and destroyed, uh, they say, no, I know what you can do to me and I'm willing to resist that. It's, it, they do have a they do have an edge in credibility under those circumstances. I I think you're probably right about that. But D- go ahead, Reed, jump in. Yeah. Well, um, no, I I think I broadly agree with this, right? And 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 want to. I think part of my job in this conversation is to inject uh, the the academic uh, I don't know thinking or definitions, but um, uh, it, it's very difficult, right, to to answer questions that says you know. Um, we, but, you know, we hear this in policy all the time that like, oh, our threats are less credible than theirs or, um, you know, our deterrent is not as strong as it could be or whatever. Um, anything that's phrased in generalities like that, it's actually not, um, uh, you know, possible to kind of evaluate in an academic way. Uh, what I mentioned earlier is the demand portion of, of a course of interaction. It could otherwise be thought of as like stakes right? Or what is this thing over? So if somebody says, and my students say this all the time, right? Like, is deterrence working? Well, I can't answer that question because you got to tell me about what you, who you are attempting to deter from doing what, mm-hmm. very specifically. Uh, and then we can make an assessment of, of, you know, whether it has worked well in that circumstance and what might work better. Uh, so, so yes, you know, the, we think the North Koreans are making uh, credible threats of nuclear retaliation in the event that someone attempts to invade North Korea. And that's because everybody would probably make pretty credible threats. Uh, uh, any nuclear power probably uh, has an easier time making credible threats uh, uh, to retaliate against someone who has used force uh, that existentially threatens their um, sovereignty, You know, their, their uh, uh, continued existence as the government of that state. Um, you know, and and how do you make it credible? You know, you do exactly what Kim Jong-un is doing. You have to test the capability. You have to demonstrate that um, you are you are capable. Uh, you're integrating the military forces into your doctrine and um, your command and control system is robust. And he's talking about pre-delegation now, right? Because he's worried about leadership targeting. He's behaving the way that you would expect this nascent nuclear power to behave. Uh, and it's working. Right. He is he is saying um, that, you know, he has taken, for instance, and this will be interesting for us maybe to talk about. He's taken the important uh, step from the perspective of deterrence to build out uh, his tactical nuclear weapons arsenal so that he can make more credible threats of retaliation mm-hmm. because he believes that, uh, you know, like just like NATO during the Cold War, that. It's really difficult to credibly threaten to nuke Moscow the moment the toe of the first Soviet soldier crosses the border into West Berlin. Right? That you're susceptible to salami slicing, salami tactics, mm-hmm. as, as Schelling called it, um, and and people willing to test where your red lines are. Uh, and so, what do we do? We try to improve the credibility of the threats we're making by making threats of uh, lower scale use of nuclear weapons. And he's mm-hmm. doing that. And, and I think it's working from the perspective of is, is Kim Jong-un going to uh, successfully deter an invasion of North Korea? So is that the point where theory breaks down? Because it seems like you have these two theories that fly in the face of one another, the stability and instability um, paradox, as well as this deterrence compellence. Right? Does nuclear weapons kind of change that in terms of um, maybe you should say more about the contradiction you see. What I, what I see, um, 
is what I see that that I think is is revealing um, about how we think about nuclear war uh, is that um, that some of these uh, these problems of of uh, nuclear deterrence are universal uh, and. Uh, that we have a we face a choice as the country who is then going to attempt to, you know, preserve the status quo on the Korean Peninsula and prevent provocation from this. Uh, some people think irrational dictator in the north. We have a choice uh, within the stability and stability paradox about how tightly we want to link the conventional and nuclear um, realms. Mm-hmm. Right. So so if we prioritized right stabilizing strategic nuclear deterrence between the United States and North Korea then we are leaving more room for for um, what we might call provocation or just uh, um, crises and and maybe even low-scale violence right on the peninsula uh, and then it's a trade-off to do anything else though because if we decide that it's really important for us to, uh, uh, deter provocations. You know, we're starting now to just get rid of this on, on the Korean Peninsula, right? Saying we're for a long time we've we've heard from the U.S. government that we're attempting to deter missile tests. Well, that's obviously not working. Right. And now we're starting to hear language from people that says, okay, no, obviously we're not trying to deter every missile test, and not every missile test is a provocation. Well, whatever, right? We the the choice is up to us about what the demand is. What are we attempting to deter? And if it's something that's quite low level, like a missile test, then you're going to really have to accept the risk of linking um, more closely uh, uh, the escalation ladder, right? Mm-hmm. Um, uh, and and there are choices you can make in the in the military signals that we carry out that. It, that explicitly do things that are more about risk and brinkmanship. We haven't talked about brinkmanship quite yet. It would be interesting to do that, but that's what states turn to when they can't make credible threats of punishment. Mm. That instead you have to turn to risk and accept mm. risk. Um, but I think you know that's a reasonable debate to have, and I I shy away from it a little bit to think that that you know I'm not so interested in accepting. Uh, risks of escalation to deter things like missile tests, but we can fight about where the line is, right? We'd like to deter, you know, the sinking of the Chonan, for example, right? That's mm. a serious um, uh, use of conventional force that that we would right. like to be able to deter. Um, but then you, you've got these debates amongst ourselves about how much risk of escalation are you willing to accept in order to uh, prevent the stability and stability paradox from making those provocations somewhat more acceptable or at least reduce the credibility of the punishment to mm. prevent them. Okay, interesting. Uh, uh, General Bowen, let's go to you on this one. Uh, I don't have a whole lot more to add, honestly. I mean, it's it's a, Reed's point is um, is spot on on in terms of deterring missile tests, for example. And, and at the time I was still on active duty, um, that's one of the things we were trying to do and we struggled with it. You know, uh, and obviously it didn't work. Mm-hmm. Um, so you've got to be able to present the credible threat and and impose consequences if there's bad behavior. And we talk a good talk, but we don't always walk a good walk um, for a, for a number of reasons. So, Dan, you, you had something to add to that? Yeah, well, I was just I was just thinking because I feel uh, feel like we've talked about this in different ways already, but maybe we could wrap it up in a bow for our, our students, at least and people listening. But you know, we're talking a little bit about how how do you make what makes this work, right? What makes compelling threats work? We talked a lot about credibility is obviously a part of that, right? Your threat has to be credible. We talked about communication. So I was thinking maybe we could sort of summarize those points. And also, I wanted to hear a little bit more about the role of assurance in all of this that I know Reed talks about in his class. But, you know, and, and because I also was hoping we could take some of these threads, you know, talking about specifics like Ukraine or China and Taiwan a little bit later in the, in the podcast, but um, in terms of, you know, what makes deterrence work 
is spe uh, specifically deterrence. Uh, you know, we can talk about compellence as well. There's a, a, additional elements, I think, maybe. But what makes it work and how important is the insurance role? So um, anybody want to start on that question? I can, I mean, cool. I can start. Because <laughs> uh, you're asking about insurance? Yeah, yeah well, I'm, right? I'm asking about sort of like trying to put it all together and say, okay, you know, what at least theoretically makes deterrence work best, right? What are, what are the best practices to make a deterrent, uh, you know, a state that is attempting to deter another state from an action, what's the, what are the best things to do and how do you do them to make that successful? And I know assurance is part of that. I'll add, I'll just, you know, on, on a little more of the, the theory here, right? Um, what, what makes deterrence work? Um, for starters, yes, it's critically important that uh, you communicate an assurance that you are also happy with the status quo. Because deterrence defends the status quo. We're saying, don't do anything. Don't change the status quo. Uh, and if simultaneous to that, you send signals to the other country that you are interested in changing the status quo, well, then they have a lot less of an interest to comply because uh, you are not uh, saying, don't do anything. You're saying, let me change the status quo. That's not deterrence anymore. Uh, it could be, you know, compelling or a fait accompli. Um, uh, I, I worry about this today. I know a lot of people do in the case of Taiwan, since you brought it up. Uh, uh, credibility of our threats is in the eye of the beholder. Uh, so uh, Beijing might might look at American deterrent threats over Taiwan and say, okay, you know, we believe that the United States is, is uh, either going to come to the aid of Taiwan or going to impose such great costs on us that if we choose to invade Taiwan and unify by force, that we are deterred from taking that action. We think that, that they will actually punish us. Right? Uh, and so we think American deterrent threats are credible. But at the same time, the United States is signaling uh, through this change of um, from strategic ambiguity to, to strategic clarity, changing something about the one China policy. Uh, and if the status quo is the one China policy, uh, uh, actions that we start to take uh, that signal that maybe we're interested in a, a sovereign Taiwan one day mm -hmm. is going to undermine uh, uh, that's the stability of deterrence um, over Taiwan. So that's that's a critical assurance component. The other thing is just you're asking about best practices, right? We talk about the best practices in IR as um, signaling to try and tie your hands and sink costs over the, the stakes of the dispute. So um, uh, uh, for deploying conventional forces to allied countries uh, it, as a signal that um, we are willing to bear the costs of this deployment, um, uh, maybe even the risks of this deployment, right? Uh, to signal that this is something we really care about. Uh, so that, that improves the credibility uh, in the eye of the beholder because I've shown you I'm willing to sink some cost into the issue. I really care about it. Uh, and another thing it does is it ties my hands because these forces can act as a tripwire. That you might not think that I am interested in defending the Baltics, uh, but if in taking the Baltics, somebody, Russia, has to kill Americans to do so, then I have tied the hands of a future administration by saying that, uh, uh, you know, look, it's not just the Baltics that are at stake here, but it's uh, American military personnel as well. Mm -hmm. So sunk costs and tied hands are the sort of strategies we we talk about. Yeah, so, so to segue off of that, if I may, <clears throat> on assurance, one of the things that frustrates me, or did frustrate me, yeah, it still frustrates me, is what is US grand strategy? Um, it seems to me that it changes every time the occupant of the White House changes. There are some elements of it that stay the same, yeah. but when you think about assurance, you wanna have some predictability, right? Yeah. And you, you, if you compare our system to what China does, China has a long-term plan and they're executing it. Our plan is all over the map, depending on who we elect. And I would be interested in, in your guys' thoughts without getting political on this, um, is, is how do you think that our political system plays into our ability to have assurance. Yeah, I, you know, when you say that, Joe, the thing that jumps to my mind, because I served in the campaign with the 
defeat ISIS mission uh, was uh, when the Syrians used chemical weapons on their own people. And President Obama had said months before, oh, if they use chemical weapons, then, you know, we'll we'll consider strikes and and whatever. That would be a red line uses the term red line. And then when it happens, like, oh, no, I didn't say I didn't say red line. <laughs> but then the Syrians do it again. Fast forward two years, whatever it is. And then President Trump actually launches strikes into into Syria. Um, it seems like during and that's one of the things that you talked about, Reed, in terms of assurances where we lost a lot of credibility when the president failed to, uh, you know, adhere to that to that red line. I, I don't know if that's, you know. Yeah, I would Not say that in terms of that's a reputation for making good on threats, right? It's a reputation for threat making, but it would be entirely different than a reputation for um, making good on assurances. So, so the reputational uh, hit the uh, on the assurance side that's much more significant from the Obama administration um, is the uh, intervention into Libya, because mm -hmm. and and this is the you know it's the fascinating one where. Um, I, I think it, it demonstrates sort of the limits of being able to um, uh, assure anybody, uh, coercively assure anybody, um, given uh, that we have a democracy, let alone now a very partisan, um, polarized democracy. Uh, but it's not like the Obama administration came in thinking what we really want to do is topple the Qaddafi government, right? That wasn't a goal of the administration. If anything, this was an issue that was distracting from other things they wanted to accomplish in the world. Um, uh, but, you know, thinking about it through the lens of assurance, in the 2003 Bush administration deal to disarm the Libyan WMD program um, had it with it uh, an implied and sometimes explicit assurance that said, if you comply and give up your WMD program, then uh, you will remain, we will not invade, you will not become the next Saddam Hussein, we will not invade and, and you can remain the, the government of Libya. Then we get 2011 and the opportunity presents itself to a different administration to get rid of this dictator who's been a thorn in the side of, the, uh, of many American presidents for generations uh, and um, and they take it. They take the opportunity to provide close air support to the rebels on the ground uh, who killed Gaddafi. What that suggests to me is that, that there's an inherent limit to assurance in general in a democracy or maybe even just in any country um, uh, because as time goes on, opportunities arise that you did not anticipate uh, and, and you, can't, you don't necessarily have had to seek out um, uh, or be interested in, in reneging on an assurance that you or somebody else has made in the past, but sometimes you're going to. Uh, and so given that nobody can guarantee, you know, that they know what the future holds, this is an inherent problem for coercion in general. Mm. Yeah. No, that's interesting. So why don't we move the, um, the conversation on then in terms of how this, uh, plays into making good strategy is, are we, um, you know, given the limitations that we just talked about in terms of um, assurances between administrations, uh, we could also say, as you as you alluded to, um, Reed, that you know the the concept of single signaling might also have some limitations in a in a cross cultural uh, world, right? A signal, a very clear signal to the United States may mean something completely different to the Chinese or the Russians. Um, so. So how, given the limitations of what we're talking about in terms of what we can and can't do with coercion, whether it's conventional or nuclear, how do we then make strategy? How do we, how do we uh, set strategy in terms of these different aims that we have uh, around the world? And um, so actually, why don't we start, General Bowen, with you on this one? Well, it kind of goes back to my last comment. It was one of my frustrations. Um, in, if I were the benevolent dictator of the universe for one day, one of the things I would I would make happen is that national security and our grand strategy would transcend politics, partisan politics. Uh, we should all be on the same team on that. We can argue about all the other stuff going on, but uh, in my view, that we need to have that that serious discussion and come to some agreements 
so we can we can look at things in in a long, more through a longer term lens than we do right now uh, instead of every four year presidential election cycle, um, and and of course the budget that goes with it coming out of the Congress. Um, there's there's no predictability in that. So uh, I I think um, if we could find some level of agreement on what are the what are the big rocks strategically that are that are vital U.S. national interests and and focus all of our attention on those, I think everything else would follow. But, uh, you know, obviously easier said than done. Yeah, interesting. Yeah, sir, I, I agree with you that the frustration over grand strategy and, and what it is and what it, what what the United, what grand strategy is in a in theoretical sense, what is that? And then what is our strategy, the United States? Do we have one? Does it change over time? These are questions we think about a lot at the War College. And um, I think, like you said, I just want to kind of echo your point about being clear about what our, you know, we teach this to our students. This all starts with what are the political aims? What is it you're trying to achieve? And so if we want to, when we think, how does this coercion stuff play into strategy? We should, we need to be clear about what it is we want to happen or not happen vis-a-vis -vis specific adversaries at specific times, right? Like the, like Reed was talking about earlier, the you have to, in order to evaluate the success of this on the back end, you need to know, well, what were we trying to do and when uh, with regard to what actor? And then we can say, did it work or not? Right. And so on the front end, we have to think about. So, you know, as a, a concrete example, when we thought that Russia was thinking about invading Ukraine, we had a choice to make. What is it do, that we really want? Do we really, really want to prevent an invasion or do we? want to limit the scope of that invasion or do we want to you know what are we willing to commit all of that has to be clear in order for us to have a cohesive strategy and it has to be clear in different parts of the world at the same time so it's a really really challenging problem or with with regard to taiwan what do we really want it regard to taiwan i mean the current policy is we we uh support peaceful you know uh resolution to the one china problem right as long as it's peaceful we we should be theoretically be okay with it uh however you see elements of the government that maybe are not okay you know or have different aims and so that creates tensions in strategy which i think we need to avoid but this is stuff that maybe is beyond maybe it's too much to ask that we we are that unified in our goals and our political uh, I don't know. It's a, it's a, it's difficult, but I think it's really important to be clear. I'm, I'm kind of, I lean on the clear side because some people talk about a little bit of ambiguity being good in deterrence as well, but at a certain level for me, a little bit of clarity about what you want the other side to do and when or not do is important for successful strategy making. Um, I'll stop there. Dan, see if Dan I, I was laughing as, as you said that because our very last podcast we talked about the war in Ukraine and we had uh, our senior State Department rep uh, who has served in the embassy in Kiev, uh, Walt Primeholder. And he said that um, not only did they get evacuated, but the first people they evacuated were the Marines that guard the embassy because they didn't they figured that, uh, you know, any dead U.S. servicemen on TV when the Russians invaded would would compel us to then do something about it. And they didn't want that to happen. Right. So, so I would say we actually did have a very clear choice. We were, we, we were not going uh, right. to you know, deter the Russians. From, we, were, we were saying things diplomatically, but what we were doing on the ground was signaling that, hey, you know, if you invade, we're, we want to get our... our well, and, and, and some, some go so far as to say, uh, and you can debate if you, if you want, but to say the invasion, that was not a deterrence failure, at least the U.S. versus Russia, people argue that, that that was not a deterrence failure. And in fact, deterrence is holding because there's certain things that haven't happened that we would prefer not to happen. So, you know, this, you know I don't yeah. want to get into that now. But no, well, this I'll, goes I'll back to that like point. It. We need to give Rita a chance to get in the conversation here. But this goes back to that point about what is our aim? Is our aim to um, stop nuclear escalation, just like on the, on the Korean Peninsula? Or is our aim to prevent conventional violence? Because it seems like if we can prevent the nuclear, that's one thing, but the conventional then, I don't know, Reed, is that the ticket for bad behavior for these guys like Putin and, uh, and Kim Jong-un? No, I think, I think um, your line of uh, uh, reasoning is exactly what I would have brought up, um, right? It, it's a clear, uh, given what administration officials were saying prior to the invasion, it's a clear deterrence failure because they were attempting to prevent the invasion through the threat of sanctions. 
Mm. Uh, and that obviously failed. And then we get really funny statements from the president of the United States afterwards saying, oh, you know, this isn't a deterrence failure. I wasn't trying to deter it. Well, like if you look at the language, it, they were attempting to deter it, but um, maybe they didn't have, you know, a lot of confidence that sanctions were going to to prevent uh, for change the mind of, of Vladimir Putin. Um, but what we also get in the aftermath is much uh, better coordination with Europe over uh, what those sanctions are going to be. And, and everyone is surprised by the severity of the economic coercion that, that comes in afterwards. The fascinating thing, because everyone's interested now in, in this moment because of um, the supposed new strategy of, of disclosing intelligence right, about the invasion uh, ahead of time. Uh, and and I do think you know it, it was fascinating. You know we get it um, probably because uh, Bill Burns is the director of the CIA and he's uh, very interested in in um, you know the strategy of coercive intelligence disclosures and he has diplomatic experience and maybe he's thinking along these lines about uh, what makes coercion work and whatnot, um, especially using the information piece of the dime. Um, I think there's going to be a lot of exciting books written, written about it later. Uh, when we actually learn the details, uh, you know, other than press reporting or what, what went on. Um, but the fascinating thing about it from a coercion perspective is that as soon as the administration uh, started releasing information um, about, you know, the intentions of the Kremlin to invade, uh, false flag attack preparations, uh, you know, video recording propaganda that they were getting ready to release, you know, the, the plans for like the, the uh, puppet government uh, and then uh, after, the, after a quick victory, victory to topple Kiev, et cetera, et cetera. Um, as soon as you start releasing that information, then demands start coming out in public for everyone to impose sanctions immediately, right? Why are you waiting? Right. Uh, why? Why would you bother to wait uh, uh, for the invasion to happen before you impose the punishment? Well, that's an assurance problem, mm. because if you want to signal to the Kremlin that there is a contingent punishment uh, that you are threatening in order to attempt to deter them from taking action. And if you impose that punishment preemptively, you have removed their incentive to comply. Mm. So, so I think the fascinating thing to to study on this in the, this moment of of um, coercive intelligence disclosures is how that interacts with uh, assurance in in the coercion context. Hmm. Interesting. So it it strikes me is um, in uh, in the time we have left, we should uh, bring up another contemporary example that we've touched on, and that's the the China Taiwan problem. So how can we take what we what we have here in terms of uh, and, and given what we've seen as well with uh, the Ukraine, similar scenario, nuclear armed power wants to uh, absorb a um, uh, conventionally armed power that we have ties with, if not um, security uh, agreements with. Um, where do we go from here with with that problem? Uh, General Bowen, let's start this one with you. Yeah, that's a that's a really interesting question. So I've got a theory, um, and that theory is that the Chinese are going to self deter from doing anything in Taiwan, at least in the near term. And here's why I say that: uh, the Chinese watch what's happening in the world, and the Ukraine situation, uh, I think, is going to be very instructive for them because on paper, the, the Russians should have rolled through the Ukraine in in sixty to ninety days, and it should have been done. Yeah, but it didn't happen that way. Uh, the Ukrainians are fighting much harder than anybody thought they would because they're defending their homeland. The Russian military has underperformed epically. Mm -hmm. And the Chinese have got to be kind of taking a look at that going, oh, man, what if that happens to us in Taiwan? Mm -hmm. You know, the Chinese have a lot of great gear. They got a bunch of, you know, new fighters and they've got ships and they've got all sorts of stuff. But what they don't have is any combat experience. And as as a Marine, you'll appreciate that, uh, that pulling off a a uh, an invasion um, from the sea oh, is yeah. not an easy <laughs> proposition. Right. right. Um, you know, the last time we did that was what Incheon. So um, so we haven't done it in a long time either. Um, but the Chinese have got to be looking at this and starting to think to themselves, maybe we shouldn't do this. At least that's mm -hmm. my hope that they're going to kind of self deter. Um, 
but um, and, and we can uh, get into the some of the nuclear deterrent stuff uh, in a bit. I think we're running low on time, but that's kind of my initial thought on I, I see kind of a connection between the two. OK, great. Uh, Reed, we'll go to you next. Yeah, um, uh, I run a simulation with my class on um, the politics of nuclear weapons on um, the Taiwan crisis. Probably because I think this is the most likely candidate for a, a crisis that will emerge in their lifetimes uh, that they need to, uh, my students need to be thinking about, um, about, you know, uh, what happens if we get actions that short of war, but um, are meant to uh, uh, encourage the United States to abandon whatever commitment it has to the defense of Taiwan, right? So think about uh, blockade. Mm. Um, uh, this is, it's incredibly thorny because uh, the students that have really fascinating debates about uh, how to interpret things like the Taiwan Relations Act. What is the American commitment? What is the commitment we have made to the defense mm -hmm. of Taiwan? Um, what are our interests in Taiwan? Uh, what other interests should be, are tied to Taiwan? Like, what is the interdependence of our commitments around the world? Um, uh, you know, and it, it can't be that none of our commitments are, are, are interdependent, but it also probably isn't the case that all of our commitments are interdependent. And just because, you know, that's how you get domino theories that just because Taiwan falls means that, uh, people won't believe the United States, uh, when it makes promises anymore. Um, so, uh, I've already shared, you know, my, my, um, my basic insight here, which is that, uh, uh, this is an assurance problem as much as it is a, a how to make our threats credible problem. Mm. Uh, and I, I think we're struggling in the United States with both sides of that right now, because um, uh, you're starting to get the sense that uh, that commitment to a, a long, uh, to supporting a long war effort in Ukraine is diminishing uh, combat power in such a way that, that maybe uh, at least in a munitions supply sense, uh, we're we're reducing um, the perceptions of the other side, at least of our commitment to um, uh, our capacity to to fight a war over Taiwan if we wanted to. Um, uh, but at the very same time, right? If you uh, even if you have solved that problem and you have told you've convinced Beijing that uh, there will be significant. Uh, cost to the invasion, um, we have we have also not solved we haven't solved the problem of how to convince them that we are actually going to be happy with the status quo in perpetuity. Mm. Uh, and and I hope that those signals are coming through uh, uh, back channels consistently um, and and um, uh, yeah. So uh, and I don't know. Uh, so yeah. <laughs> I, I am worried. <laughs> which is why I run the simulation with my class. I am worried yeah. that it's not a particularly stable um, deterrent situation right now. Yeah, yeah I, I agree with you, Reed, uh, about the, with the worry, uh, in particular because the United States seems happy with the status quo or with a peaceful resolution of some kind, a peaceful change to the status quo. But China is not, clearly not happy with the status quo. Yeah. And so... You have that that that's the baseline situation in terms of you know all the stuff we've been talking about, um, and so you know I think from a U.S. perspective, if if that's the case, then we need to make it clear and credible and all of that that it will not be easy for China to non peacefully change the status quo. I think if that's our if that's what we are if the United States is committed to then that's what it's going to take because I think China understands the risks and costs that are involved and they are unlikely to attempt to forcibly change the status quo um how unless it looks easy so I I kind of think of them as more opportunistic than than anything else in terms of Taiwan specifically. I mean, they're obviously a revisionist power. They want to change the world and make it work better for them. But in terms of Taiwan, I think it's a, it's an opportunistic type of situation where they're patient 
and they they're they're single-minded but they're patient enough that there's a there's hope that the resolution is is peaceful at some point down the road but not without some work on the united states part um and if if they get the opportunity if it looks easy enough uh they may try it but that's again we don't we don't know <laughs> reed you wanted to respond to that yeah let me just add i know we're running out of time here just to the couple things to think about on the nuclear lens of this, right? Taiwan, first of all, this is a, this is a, a you know, government doesn't exist, right? Without the nuclear mm -hmm. shadow, right? The American nuclear deterrence is what prevents uh, uh, the um, uh, communist victors of the Chinese civil war from, from finishing the civil war in their minds, right? And, and crossing the Taiwan Straits. Um, uh, even, and that's the case, even though, you know, the United States is not uh, officially extending uh, uh, the nuclear umbrella uh, to Taiwan. Um, but uh, we do worry about this war uh, if, it, if it ever started going nuclear. And what I would encourage everyone uh, to read on this is Caitlin Talmadge's work on inadvertent yeah. escalation in a war yeah. over Taiwan, because mm -hmm. there are clear pathways by which you can end up fighting a nuclear war with China, despite the best interests and intentions of either side to avoid one. Yeah. That's, that's one of our readings for the Warwick uh, yep, yeah. College. <laughs> so and good deal. Whenever I teach so, it, I, I, I make sure they hit that one hard. hard. <laughs> yeah. I, we, I hit that one every time. Yeah. So as uh, since we are at an hour here, let's do final wrap up comments. It's been a great discussion. But uh, but Reed, why don't we start with you? Final thoughts and closing comments on uh, on the stuff we talked about. Oh, gee, um, an hour is far too short to yeah. talk about <laughs> to all of the, the, the yeah. scratch the surface of this important <laughs> issue, right? Um, uh, I just think that, that uh, uh, thank you for having me. And I think that uh, uh, the Naval War College is doing um, some of the best work, right, to think about uh, these topics and train our, our next generation of, of national security leaders to think about them in a, a very a clear and coherent way that is based in theory and as much empirics as possible, even though it's really hard to get good empirical evidence on when things like deterrence work, because again, when it works, nothing happens. Right. Uh, so it's really hard <laughs> to, to get evidence on what works and what doesn't in this domain. Uh, but it it's just critical that we be explicit about what we think works so that we can um, uh, adjust uh, and and uh, you know change strategy um, uh, as necessary and as information kind of reveals itself um, to us. Um, and and uh, you know I'm just up the street uh, in Providence, so uh, I look forward to more conversations like this. Awesome, good deal, Dan. Why don't we go to you next? Uh, great, uh, this was awesome. I will, uh, I guess if I had any final thoughts about coercion in general and deterrence and compellence, I would, I would, I would leave our listeners with the, with the thought that, uh, we always have to keep in mind that this happens in the mind of the adversary, right? So this is all about the perceptions and understandings and incentives that the adversary possesses, uh, to, to make a choice that they're being presented with. Right. And so, I worry sometimes when we focus, when when the United States in particular focus too much on having the magic combination of capabilities, right? We need certain weapon systems or we need, and these debates we have about how, how these things contribute to deterrence, right? They're not always clear about how possessing that capability is going to directly affect the thinking of the adversary. And so that we need to make that second connection. Why is, how, in what way is what we are doing or what we have going to help or, or going to impact the other side, which requires deep intelligence work and knowledge and communication and all these things. And so I leave that with that, that final thought. And, and just a, a, relatedly in the United States, the key, the buzzword now in this area is integrated deterrence, right? That's our new, that's the phrase you'll hear with regard to this topic in the government right now. And my fear applies there that we, when we think about it, I just heard the Dep Deputy Assistant Secretary of Defense talk about this. And she talked about for plans and policy. And when she was asked about what is integrated deterrence, she talked about all about our, what, we, what we're what we doing on our side. 
And there was no discussion about how what we're doing is impacting the decision-making of the other side. Mm. And I and I thought it was, to me, that jumps out as an important thing. So we need to think about that second half. So that's my final thought on this. Well, good point. Yeah, thank you. Jerome uh, Bowen, I'll end with you. Um, so I, I, I'll, I'll go with, I got a couple things um, that I've been working on. Uh, one of them is deterrence in space. What does deterrence look like in the space domain? Um, and that's kind of what I've been doing with NIDS uh, is looking at, at, at that. But one of the really thorny problems that we're looking at right now, and I know the DOD is, is trying to work on this, and this would be a good thing for your students to think about, is three-party deterrence. Now, we're, we're, we're in the middle of a, a nuclear breakout that the Chinese are clearly going from a minimum deterrence policy to wanting to be on par with us. So now the U.S. is facing two peer competitors in the nuclear world, and the, the preponderance of uh, the writings out there on deterrence theory are, are all two-party. They're, they're the U.S. and the USSR or yeah. us and Russia. And, you know, so Dan and I together have killed millions of people in computer simulations. We, <laughs> we practiced did. this. We did. We did. We did. And, uh, but we always were thinking about uh, what we called third-party deterrence. So if you're in a major firefight with somebody uh, nuclear-wise, we always keep back, you know, some capability for opportunistic actors to deter them from taking advantage of the situation. Well, now we've got two peer competitors and potentially opportunistic um, people out there or countries that, that may try to take advantage of the situation. So how how do you how do you do deterrence with with three major parties and a few little ones? And then as a follow on to that is the U.S. triad appropriately sized to, to handle that kind of threat? So that's mm -hmm. kind of what's rattling around in my head and uh, what we've been thinking about at NIDS. Wow, awesome. All right, well, gentlemen, thank you very much. This was interesting and informative. Uh, as always, I, I learn a lot from doing these podcasts, so thank you for your time and, uh, and participation, and we will see everybody next time on Profiles and Strategy. Thank you. <laughs>